Welcome to Live Without Littlewood. Without Littlewood? Yes. That sound is the sound of a Littlewood-shaped vacuum. He's not here. He's on sabbatical, writing his book, smothered in Factor 50, leaving it to poor saps like me, Martin Durkin, to try feebly to fill his gigantic classical liberal boots. Well, what a week. He's going to be sorry he missed it. I've got four amazingly gorgeous and brainy guests and the world in turmoil, which always makes for interesting chats. There's the Tories trying to boot out Boris Johnson, trying to get him through the door, but he's stuck at the door. He's holding on to the door frame with his fingernails. Um, and we have far more serious than that. Inflation going through the roof, sterling going through the floor, and an and a genuine, awful cost-of-living crisis with real people struggling to buy food, to pay bills. Uh, really awful stuff. And the question I want to say, isn't it time we got angry about it? How did we get here? Yes, welcome to Live Without Littlewood. And it really is live. I always thought that these shows were pretend live, recorded and then put out as live. But they're not. They're actually live, uh, which surprised me. And I wouldn't have agreed to do it if I'd known they give you all these cards, which I'm not going to be able to cope with in my bit of paper. But luckily, luckily, this being the IEA, they give you beer to drink, which will get me through. And also the fact that I'm joined with four of my dearest, closest friends who I've known for many, many years. And they are, hold on, Andy Mayer, who actually is a pal um, in, in real life truth, um, energy analyst at the IEA to talk about why we're all doomed and who is to blame. Um, and then we've got commentator and broadcaster Emma Webb, um, who's a brilliant up-and-coming documentary maker, uh, to talk about why we ended up in this mess. And on a brighter note, the Queen's Jubilee and the monarchy. Who likes them, who hates them, and why? Um, and Matt, Matt Lesh, Head of Policy, Public Policy at the IEA, to discuss the insane life-extinguishing black hole we're drifting into called Net Zero. But before that, I'm delighted to introduce, he's an economist, philosopher, journalist. He's also a member of the IEA Sunday Times Monetary Policy Committee. He's pretty genius. And next, UCL boy as well. We can look, chat about that later. Uh, so we should know his stuff on inflation. Dr. Andrew Lillico. Andrew, thank you very much for joining me. No problem. So we have a cost of living crisis. I mean, a huge, great, walloping, awful cost of living crisis. And obviously one thing that immediately presents itself in a cost of living is the prices are going up everywhere. Prices are going up. Why are they going up? Well, it's a combination of factors. Some of it is to do with um, energy price spikes, so something like a third of the rise in the prices associated with uh, rising energy costs. So people will have seen their um, gas and electric bills going up by fantastic amounts over the past month or so, um, truly eye-popping figures. Uh, then there's also some uh, issues with manufacturing costs, so the lockdowns in Shanghai and in China with all of that have disrupted supply chains. Uh, and then, uh, as well as all of that, uh, there was an awful lot of um, money that was uh, printed over 
over many years, but in particular during the period of the lockdowns, and some of that is now coming home to roost in terms of effects. Plus, as we recovered out of COVID, it was always going to be the case that there was a bit of normalization, adjustment, new prices, things that we were buying that we weren't before that are going up in prices as a consequence. And so the adjustment uh, in the post-COVID period is another factor there. So prices, obviously, of individual goods and services are going up and down all the time for all sorts of reasons. If you know, the price of bread will go up if all the bakers lose the dough or whatever's happening. Um, but oftentimes, I guess, if, say, there's an oil crisis and the price of oil goes up, generally we have less money to spend on other stuff, so the price of other stuff doesn't necessarily go up at the same time. When oil prices tend to be rising at the same time, tell me what that's got to do with there being more money. How, why does more money mean higher prices? Well, if you, if you simply had that some prices rose and others fell, that would just be a change in the relative prices of things, and that, that kind of stuff happens all of the time. In order for you to have a general inflation, you need to have that, uh, that those kinds of movements in prices are accommodated, uh, economists call it. So there's enough money in the system relative to the amount of goods being produced to allow the inflation to occur. The mechanisms by which having extra money turns into extra inflation are not straightforward or directly um, it's sort of mechanically predictable. It's quite an important thing for economists of a certain bent to deny the notion that there's a very mechanical relationship. Otherwise, you could imagine having an economy which was very precisely planned over time, that you have exactly this amount of money and then that. Instead, what you have is um, the, the term economists of that uh, of, uh, of my bent use is uh, long and variable lags. So there, the, you can have it might be 18 months, but it might be five years until your extra money printing turns into inflation. But it's going to happen sometime down the line. And the amount of money that we put in the, into the system was always pretty likely to turn into some extra inflation. I always remember uh, Ludwig von Mises. I was determined to keep it simple, but I had to throw in Mises, um, describing how if you have suddenly twice as much money in an economy, really nothing, hap nothing changes. If you have, um, uh, uh, it puts zero on the end of all the notes, then, you know, in, in a sense, no, if, if you have a game of monopoly and you have twice as much money, if everything costs the same but you're being paid twice as much, no changes because the money works its way gradually through the system that it has the effect that it has. Is that oh, right? Conversely, I mean, in France, I think in the 50s, they had a re-denomination where they took a naught off. And in Russia, uh, they've, they've just issued, an, uh, several times, they've issued a new set of banknotes that were just all with a couple of noughts off. So when you have those kinds of changes, you're just um, re-denominating things. That shouldn't change the, that just changes what the money is. It doesn't so, make anybody richer so or poorer. So it's the fact that it's exactly. gradually making its way through the system, that it does the, uh, it that, has the effect that it's supposed that's to That's right, and it's also disruptive. And, and other things go on here. here involved in real cost adjustments for people. So one of the consequences of that kind of thing is that it means that stuff that you earned in the past changes its value relative to things in the future. The higher inflation is, the more future things are worth relative to the past. And that's particularly true if you have very low interest rates. So at the moment, we have fantastically low interest rates relative to the rate and expected rate of inflation. Um, probably the, uh, uh, the lowest that we've had since 1976, at least possibly earlier. So we, we really are in a pretty unprecedented situation, at least unprecedented for many decades, in terms of not only the levels of inflation, but also how accommodating policy is. Um, a further thing I would say that was pretty unprecedented is the government doesn't have any policy with respect to how to get inflation down. All of the discussion that we have about inflation is about how the government should mitigate the impact. So we have um, various handouts here and there, and um, the politicians all get challenged by the press all the time of, you know, who are you going to hand out money to next, or how are you going to mitigate the effects? Nobody seems to care about the question of, 
what inflation rate do you want or how could you get again I'm just trying to imagine the, the Mrs Thatcher having a, a double digits inflation and not caring what inflation should be next year and having no policy at all to get it down I find it absolutely extraordinary that the government is has that position and furthermore is allowed to get away with it let alone the fact they call themselves conservatives at the same time we're talking about a gigantic amount of money aren't we I mean the, the uh, oh, many hundreds of billions half a trillion or so half a trillion I mean printing half a trillion pounds of, uh, of money I think that uh, I was reading my IA notes my brilliant IA notes that um, half the notes in circulation at the moment um, uh, um, have been printed since 2009. Well, even notes, I mean, notes in circulation is a kind of funny thing because one of the complexities here, of course, is that we use a lot less in the way of notes and coin than we did in the past. I mean, I don't have, I don't have any coin uh, with me these days. I, uh, for a while, I used to have coins when I would give them to my kids for pocket money. But, I mean, I don't use coins and notes anymore. It's all cards. And that, when you have that sort of change in the relationship, that you lose a lot less of your notes and coins and more in the way of electronic exchanges, that's another of those complex factors. And the, the process of doing that, which was all, already ongoing, has been greatly accelerated in, in the COVID period. I'm, I'm not even convinced all the data is yet through about how much that has changed. But um, that, that, that's another big change that we've had just in the, in the past couple of years. How do they get away with it? And, um, and what, what's their excuse? Why do they do it? Why do they do it first? Well, I think it depends who you're asking. I mean, who, the, who they, this is who, the, the debasement of the currency has obviously been going on some, from time immemorial. Well, I suppose so. I mean, I'm not sure they're deliberately debasing the currency. I think it's more a matter of um, them not thinking that it mattered enough to do anything about. Um, what, what, the way I would characterise things... They're deliberately printing the money. Oh, well, they're doing that, but they felt that they had to do that because they had to mitigate what would otherwise have been a considerable contraction in the money supply when the banks failed. So one of the things that... One of the likely... One of the consequences of that would have been, if they hadn't tried to offset it, would have been a big fall and uh, significant deflation. In fact, some other countries... I mean, Ireland, for example, had quite significant deflation and you could have ended up if you'd had deflation with defaults on mortgages and all kinds of other problems in fact our banks going bust as well so that so they were trying to um, they would there were reasons why they got going on this but I think it goes back slightly earlier than that what what's happened what happened was in 1992 uh, uh, we uh, when we finished off our ERM experience we then established an inflation target for the first 15 years from 1992 to 2007 we never missed any of our inflation targets. So the government specified what inflation rate was going to be achieved all the time through to 2007, it was achieved. From 2007, in 2007 they missed and um, the Bank of England uh, the, had wrote a letter to the, uh, to the Chancellor saying, we, uh, we missed and it doesn't really matter. And then the MPC all went off and said, oh, we, all, all it is is that you write a letter. It's not really missing. Um, and, uh, and then since then, since the first time we missed and no admonishment of the bank or any of their policies was, was taken as a consequence, they've written 30 letters subsequently. Not once has, the, has any chancellor admonished the bank for missing its target. We have a very strange ritual at the moment, and notionally the inflation target is 2%. So every month or three months, depending on what, what you're doing, because it's not always exactly the same amount of time, uh, a letter is written by the governor saying, um, I, I haven't tried to meet that target that you set because it would have been a bad idea. And the chancellor writes back a letter saying, um, yes, indeed, it would have been a terrible idea to try to meet the target that I set you. And uh, what we need to have is, an, is a target which they actually want. The notion, Rishi Sunak does not want the Bank of England 
to get inflation to 2% this year. So why does he have a 2% inflation target? He should have an inflation target which he actually wants them to meet. Similarly for next year and the year after, it doesn't have to be something silly. He doesn't have to say, I'm not saying the number should be zero. Maybe the right number for next year is 6 to 10% or something. But whatever it is that he really wants them to achieve, he should tell them what he wants them to achieve. And if they don't achieve it, there should be consequences. In fact, I think at this stage, the consequence would be firing all of the MPC and removing, revoking Bank of England independence uh, for 2023. I think that's really the only thing he can do uh, at this point. Um, but that you can't go on and on with having an inflation target where year after year, 30 times, you have letters written because you missed and nothing happens as a consequence. Can we trust, I mean, can we trust central banks? Can we trust politicians to be in charge of currency? Um, uh, you know, politicians, as far as they're concerned, I mean, it looks good to print money and they're so heavily in debt. Can you explain to me how the, the relationship between indebtedness and inflation. Well, perhaps the most, the most straightforward relationship between indebtedness and inflation is that uh, one of the consequences of inflation is that people who are large debtors benefit as a consequence because their inflation, their, their large debts get eroded by inflation. And our profligate politicians are usually... So, uh, exactly. So we've got whatever it is, 90, 100% debt to GDP in the UK. So that gives the politicians an enormous incentive not to do anything very much about inflation. It's, in the, it's enormously in their interest to allow the inflation to proceed by benign neglect. Uh, and that's, that's the most straightforward. There are other mechanisms by which you have impacts on aggregate demand, all kinds of technical things that economists worry about a lot. But fundamentally, the most powerful instruments for controlling inflation are the control of the money supply and interest rates. So these other things, which will affect it a bit, and, and I mean, a thing I would point out is, in the US, the Federal Reserve is an independent central bank as well. But Biden's administration, just the other day, is, um, announced a package, a multi-layered package for how it was tackling inflation. Biden wrote a, wrote a, a big um, newspaper article mm. was, uh, out yesterday or the day before explaining what his anti-inflation strategy would be. He doesn't think that the fact that he has an independent central bank means that he doesn't have to have an anti-inflation policy. But somehow in the UK, we think that that's OK. I just, I don't get it. It's like 65 years of uh, monetary policy analysis never happened. Yeah, well, we're the, the, we've got alcoholics in charge of the brewery. Um, and to help us steer, navigate the next, um, uh, uh, the next question, can we um, uh, uh, please welcome Andy Mayer from the IEA. Andy. So, Andy, I mean, I mean, dear me, one of my favourite um, pamphlets of the IEA is the denationalisation of money by Frederick Hayek. I mean, denationalised money, how's about it? <laughs> well, I think before we go there, I mean, the good news is all that extra money that we're printing, we're not yet in the position where we're having to burn it for fuel. <laughs> but give the government time, and we can't be so sure. Like uh, uh, Pablo Escobar, Abs absolutely burning I mean, the blinking sterling. Yeah, I mean, it is a problem that the government seem to be somewhat incapable of controlling themselves when it comes to the supply of money. But really, the inflationary crisis we're in is more about household bills. It's more about the things that we actually need, energy, food, going up in price, although the food position at the moment is a bit lagged. So this is something we're expecting to have more next year. But energy is shooting up in price. And that means that you've got less money in your pocket to spend on the things you really want. And you're having to spend it on those things that you actually require to ensure that you don't freeze to death in winter. And so my question to you, Andy, because we'll, well, it would be lovely to continue talking about the disgusting crime of money printing. And why don't they call it money printing? This is how they get away with it. We don't just call it what it is. But anyway, 
other factors in these price rises which are causing people so much pain. Can you tell me how much of these, when we pay for petrol, when we pay for beer, when we pay for fags, how much of that actually is tax? Okay, so it varies clearly by which of those you're talking about. So one of the great mysteries this week has been the government's over-excitement when it comes to the price of fuel for those filling up their cars. The government has said it's an absolute scandal, it's outrageous that people who are running one of the 8,500 fuel courts across the country are perhaps charging a little bit more and getting a little bit more profit out of those transactions at the till. So the government is really cross about that. Now, this is the same government that is responsible for just under half the cost of each litre of petrol or diesel that's going into your car. So on the one hand, you've got 80 to 90p, the government. On the other hand, you've got maybe 1 or 2p that you're not sure whether or not that's additional profit that's being unfairly charged or might just be the fact that these companies are hedging against the risk of those prices being very volatile. So this is nonsense. It's, it's, it's really all about laying off political responsibility. The government would rather pretend that it was anybody's responsibility than theirs that for inflation they want to say, oh, it's all um, we're rapacious capitalists in this kind of a, a instance, or it's, or it's all the nasty governor of the Bank of England, or it's you know, the, the Russians in Ukraine, or the Chinese. or It's anybody's fault but ours. Mm -hmm. They just don't want to take responsibility for it. So just to clear, because that is an amazing fact. When you fill your car with petrol, half of that, or however much that was, is going in tax. So yeah. in other words, if they wanted to make fuel more important, stop taxing. Yeah, it's actually worse than you think. 52.95p, give or take, is fuel duty. The government then apply VAT to the fuel so duty. So when they're grinding so on about the profits being made about the oil, about, by the oil companies, that's a tiny fraction of the amount going to the government from the sale of petrol. Well, I, I want two different things. So the oil and gas companies, when the government's talking about things like the windfall tax that we saw last week, that's about drilling in the North Sea in the main and a little bit less onshore, which there are far fewer facilities. So that's a different tax regime. That oil and gas comes out of the North Sea goes to refineries or goes straight into the grid if in the case of some kinds of gas and then it goes through all sorts of different processes and ends up as a litre of petrol in your tank. Or abroad. Indeed. So different taxes but what you know is that at every stage in the processing of these raw materials which to be clear are basically prehistoric trees or biological creatures that have been in the ground for a very long time on their little journey all the way through into your tank they've been taxed quite a lot. And in this country, we seem to think that the way to solve a crisis which has been caused by a shortage of oil and gas is to tax it even more, which is insane. What we need at the moment is to make better use of the domestic supplies that are under our feet and are offshore in the North Sea. But instead of that, we're increasing taxes and hoping that somebody's going to come along and say, no, I don't mind that you will arbitrarily tax me at a whim mm. because you've got a few bad headlines and the Labour Party made you feel a bit, little bit bad last week. But that's OK. I'm going to throw money at this project and hope something turns up. It's mad. I mean, well, two, things, two things occur to me. First of all, that 
Um, this is often posed as you know, these oil companies, these rapacious bursts of capitalists and so on. But Shell, BP, I mean, the shares in these companies are owned by, I mean, it's hard to imagine a pension fund that hasn't got, or someone's private pension that hasn't got some shares in this company. We're not talking about some sort of 19th century chat with a silk hat, are we? We're talking about everyone's pensions funds here that are being kind of demonized. Um, and the second thing, the role of profits. I mean, They've complained for ages that the oil companies simply aren't investing enough. I mean, surely it's an iron rule of capitalism that if, you, if you're making more profits, you're likely to invest more. If you're making more profits, you have a higher incentive to invest more. So what they're doing is they're kind of cutting the throats of these companies owned by a lot of perfectly decent people hoping to have a happy retirement. Yeah, this is golden goose politics. So we're looking at that golden goose in the North Sea laying its eggs, and we're saying, you know, what will really help is if we cut its throat, and then we'll find all the gold inside. Well, obviously that won't happen. And we're not just saying that because we're libertarian economists. We're saying it because it's happened every single time they've done it before. It happened in the 1980s. There was a lagged effect on investment and taxation. By 1992, 90% of the tax revenue disappeared from the North Sea. It happened again in the 2000s. Gordon Brown changed the tax system, then increased it. George Osborne came in, the great conservative liberal, increased the tax again. And by 2015-16, they were paying money back. The tax system had collapsed entirely. It was negative taxation. So a hopeless mess created by this endless cycle of trying to get more tax out of the golden goose. I'm going to interrupt you there because Matt Lesh is hovering about the beautiful Matt Lesh, and he's going to join us to talk further. Cheers. Cheers, Matt. So, uh, a cost of living crisis, I mean, to what extent is this a cost of living crisis and to what extent is it a cost of government crisis? Because we have, you know, fuel which is driven up by green policies and various other policies nobbling fuel. Um, you have housing. I mean, the cost of housing, obviously, for many people is absolutely crippling at the moment. I mean, it's insane how high house prices are, and yet and you, you can look at government policies from the Second World War, uh, restrict, restrictions on planning that have just ended up uh, 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 leading us to a situation where there are too few houses and too few flats. Um, to what extent is this a cost of government crisis, man? Look, I think it was Ronald Reagan who said that the scariest words in, in the English language are, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, that's literally what Rishi said when he stood up the other day. He said, we're going to do all these things, the government's there to help you. Um, but really, I think what you're getting at there is in so many ways when it comes to cost of living, government is central to the problem. Um, as you said in housing, planning restrictions have ensured housing is substantially more expensive uh, than it would otherwise be the case. Um, you have childcare regulations that uh, put in place ratios that are some of the highest uh, in Europe and as a result um, push up the cost of childcare. Uh, you have the same kind of story as you said with electricity. Uh, when it comes to food, we still have tariffs on food uh, and quotas on imports push up the price and cost of food. Now, you can really just see this in the contrast, though. You just look at other areas where there are competitive markets where the government isn't heavily regulating. And you've actually seen price reductions in recent decades in things like televisions or computers, uh, in, in furniture, and in so many areas where we do have competitive markets without a lot of state intervention, we've seen prices go down. Whilst in a lot of other areas, you've seen prices go up. And regulation and, and the cost of government is a big part of that story. And that's, that's not an immediate fact. Obviously, there are immediate things going on with global energy prices and 
immediate things going on with supply chains. But there's the long-term fact here of government interventions puts up the structural cost of living uh, for households. And we're, we're seeing that very much bite today. But I think there is a direct effect as well, which, which is that we have the highest level of taxes since uh, 1969 uh, relative to GDP, and they're scheduled to go to the highest level since 1948. And so when people talk about the cost of living, of course, that's do with how much money you have relative to the prices of stuff. If people have less money, which they do, because the government's taking more of it, then they're going to feel, uh, feel more of the pinch. And the average family, I've got another great IEA stat here, the average family £30,000 a year pay in the realm of £12,000 each in terms of direct and indirect taxes. That's an enormous amount, isn't it? I mean, that's a heck of a lot of tax. Do you think people realise how much tax they're paying? Because this, this is never, the, I never hear it on the BBC for some peculiar reason. <laughs> the Tories obviously don't really want to talk about it because they're the ones who are taxing and so they feel a bit embarrassed about it. Labour don't want to talk about it because they really like taxing. And we seem to have a mainstream media, which certainly in terms of the BBC, which is kind of rather on board with, with taxing highly. Is there a kind of a toxic tax culture that we've got to cut through? I think it's more a matter of that the aggregate amount of public spending is very high. And so because you have very high levels of public spending, unless you want to tolerate very high levels and ongoing levels of debt, and those are high enough as it is, then you end up having to tax a lot. I mean, that's the fundamental equation here. And governments don't want to, they did some work on getting public spending down. But the reality is you can't make a big dent in public spending without cutting the NHS. And nobody wants to touch that. I think we'll just go one step further, which is, uh, yeah, of course, you're going to keep taxing, keep spending. People's demands for public services are high. But we, we can't fulfil that demand if we don't have economic growth. I mean, you, you can you know, have your cake and eat it too. You can have lower taxes funding more services um, and if you have a bigger economy. And that's why I think we, this, we need this focus on supply-side reform. I mean, so if you take the case of housing, housing is not just kind of direct cost you pay. Housing has a, a very big productivity impact because people can't live nearby where they're most productive. We just see this particularly around the Oxford-Cambridge corridor where uh, very restrictive planning restrictions in some of what could be some of the most productive parts um, in, in Europe and already are some of the most productive parts mean that more people can't join that part of the economy and people can't uh, businesses or, or startups can't get the warehousing space or the, 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 the space they need for their housing, uh, uh, for their um, needs, for office needs. So you have all these, these added up restrictions that limit the size of the economy. And if we get a bigger economy, you can, to some extent, have the services that people want. Right now, the problem is we have very high expectations of services, but we, we realistically don't have the economy to support the services people want. Um, and without supply-side reform, you can't get there. Well, it's, it's worse than that. Oh, great. Oh, yeah. oh no. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we know that the share of taxation as a share of national income has ranged between about 30% in its lowest point in the 1980s up to about 42 43% now. And that's one conversation, and Matt's absolutely right that the issue is trying to remind people that if you grow the cake then that share of taxation falls. It doesn't mean services get worse. It just means that you can care more about other things like Netflix subscriptions and nice holidays. But what we've got now is both the government and opposition who've adopted Ed Miliband's language from 10 years ago of predatory capitalism. So the government now believes that it can identify firms that are doing good things, like, say, renewable energy companies, they're nice, they're lovely, and firms that are doing evil, bad things, like drilling for oil and gas in the North Sea, and ascribe the tax system to that moral worth for each of those companies. And that's going to create a right mess. It's going to increase regulation at a micro level in different areas. We're seeing it in online, for example, online harms bill. 
which, um, br which brings me neatly onto the on, onto the next topic. But before I uh, raise it, I'd just like to say this card says, "Remember, viewers, to like, comment, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and support our digital content through Patreon, whatever Patreon is." What Patreon? It's uh, a way to help uh, donate to our digital content. It's a way digital to help membership. to donate to our digital content. Look it up, Patreon, and uh, donate to our digital content. Um, so North Sea Oil, we've been talking about um, um, uh, the, the horror of the rising uh, uh, fuel prices. It has even got me to the stage where I was about to buy a really nice second-hand Fiat Spider, and the missus is now forcing me to get a Fiat 500. That's how bad it has oh. got. Second-hand Fiat 500, and even that's quite expensive. I just, I mean, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm fuming about this. Um, so uh, uh, North Sea Oil. This is infused with green stuff, isn't it? I mean, for years and years and years, we've been told about the wickedness of coal and the wickedness of oil, and there seems to have been this greenwash within the establishment. To what extent, guys, Matt, um, are we suffering the effects of environmental policy over these years? Yeah, look, I, I think that's no doubt a big part of the story. Obviously, you've got the, the broader increase in gas prices, but part of the reason why we're so dependent on gas is because because as you move to a renewable energy-based grid, you need to have backup capacity, and that backup capacity comes from, from gas and, and no longer from coal. Um, I mean, the UK has been quite successful, you can say, in reducing carbon emissions, but th there's a substantial cost to that, and the government's unwilling to acknowledge that cost and unwilling to do it in kind of a market-based way. Now, even if you accept that there is a need to reduce carbon emissions, um, you shouldn't be selecting which technology to achieve that goal. You should be pretty technologically agnostic. Um, and the classic market solution here is if, if you use a carbon tax, get rid of all the other regulations, get rid of all the weird subsidies all over the place, the market more or less figure itself out. But right now in the electricity market, we have just layers and layers of intervention doing all sorts of different mess. And um, that it's, it's no longer in any sense an, an open, free functioning market. And as a result, uh, you're getting unintended consequences. And it's stories old as time. I'm talking about Miliband policy, just the energy price cap and the mess that's on energy companies that's then meant to hire bills to um, deal with the debt obligations of those companies just one thing amongst many in that in that I um, won't industry. I won't get on to uh, the subject close to my heart which is what total cods wallop the climate catastrophes uh, catastrophe is and how we're not allowed to say that but it is total total nonsense but nevertheless the cost of net zero it's estimated at, I mean, I think the government says, oh, it'll cost a trillion pounds. And then other people who are slightly more sensible say it'll cost three trillion pounds. I mean, Andrew, I mean, how insane are these, these figures? Well, and obviously they're thought of as over quite a long period of time. Um, a thing that I find a little bit curious about some of this discussion is that um, we don't, we still seem to me to be in a place where we're discussing as if we were going to mitigate a very large proportion of the total increase in temperature that there's going to be. And okay, we're doing a bit better than some of the worst case scenarios, but the likelihood is that we're going to have to adapt to, to climate change over the uh, forthcoming decades. Um, now, maybe you don't think that so much of that is uh, human created, but I think it's pretty indisputable that there's likely to be some change in the climate. Uh, so we're going to have to adapt and the idea that we can prevent that I think is largely for the birds 
even if even the measures that we've taken in the UK are only a small proportion of total world developments, nobody thinks that the Chinese are going to do a great deal about it, or and the Indians are only going to do so much. So, um, let alone the Americans. So the reality is that we're going to have to adapt to these changes. And I think I had thought that by now more of green discussion would be focused on that question and on the resources that you're going to be devoting to that question, and a bit less on the questions of mitigation, which I don't think are. I mean, doesn't mean you should do none, but I think that there's not an, there's the wrong set of priorities here. Thank you very much. Um, uh, the format of this show is now we eject Andrew. I don't know why, but that is the format. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. I promise. And see thank you. you for your great wisdom on the subject of inflation and money. And now, watch this fantastic pro promo about Deirdre McCluskey. I'm very much in favor of statistics, numbers. I'm a quantitative person, as I say in that mm. description. I believe that a lot of social issues, especially ones that are, that are spoken about at the IEA, are matters of how much, how big. I was trained a lot by engineers, and that's their attitude. How big, how big, how big? They've they got to do it or the bridge will fall down. But, uh, and I'm certainly not against mathematics. I think economists should know more mathematics than what they know now. They got the wrong mathematics, and I could go into the details of that, but they, they, they aren't really thinking about statistics or mathematics in, in sensible, useful ways. And uh, when you do, you discover that, that well, it's rather obvious in a, in a statistical study that the choice of variables that you put in the equation matter a great deal. And that is frequently a humanistic question. It's a question of looking back on language and thinking philosophically or historically about what humans are interested in. And then at the end of the exercise, which is very much on the IEA side, you have to ask, so what? What's the, what's the importance? Not the statistical significance, which is a terrible um, error in the in t technical economics, but the importance of what you've done, wh wh how it matters for the world. Hi, welcome back to Live Without Littlewood. Um, now it's my very great pleasure uh, to introduce you to, well not introduce you because you've been on the show before, but as a commentator and broadcaster and brilliant documentary maker, soon to replace me, let us hope, um, Emma <laughs> Webb. Hi, Emma. So um, uh, we've just been grinding on about climate change. People always try to shut me up about climate change. <laughs> I think it's an uh, unutterable cods wallop. You're not allowed to say that, are you? Why is it that we're not allowed to say it's uh, uh, total garbage? Well, it, because it's become one of the heresies, one of the sacred cows that no one's allowed to question without being tarred as being a bad person. Um, and I was just listening to what you were discussing there about the, um, the windfall tax that um, not being as, although confused often with Emily Carver, not being quite as economically literate as Emily, um, I had to look into what the windfall tax is and discovered that it's basically just theft. Um, that's precisely what is it, it is. It seems to be just theft from shareholders. Um, and I think what's interesting about this is that, um, that, that there is this, uh, this thing called the ESG, which is something like economic, social and governance um, that companies sign up to. And it's this strange intersection between um, things that usually get assigned to the culture wars and to economics. And so you have um, this, this interesting intersection between sort of battle over ideas um, and economic issues. And that seems to be 
actually, um, as you mentioned, this is something we're not often allowed to talk about. This seems to be something that is really playing into this discussion and one of the reasons why this tax is um, a populist measure in many ways because um, they think it will play very well with the public um, but ultimately is inherently counterproductive. You have this... Um because we're all talking about economics, so you're going to tell me something else about climate, I know, Andy. Um, we're, it's a technical, we've had so far a technical discussion about money, technical money about the effect of taxes, blah, 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 blah. But there is, is there not, a kind of huge culture clash here between uh, a section of society that wants to tax more and to regulate more, and a society which are paying the taxes and not, and not enjoying it, um, and being regulated and not enjoying it. I mean, it kind of comes down to that enormous clash, doesn't it? And is there a problem that the people in power, and I don't just mean the government, I mean the civil service, the people who run the quangos, the people who are in the NGOs, the people broadly who are in the media, not, not everyone, but they are on the side of the people who think we should be taxed. They're on the side of the people that printing money is fine. They're on the side of the, uh, the people who think that government intervention is just what you want and regulation. Is there a problem that we're kind of, we're, you know, those of us who are kind of criticizing that are out the, on, on the outside, these are the people with the power? Yeah, so just to be clear on climate change. <laughs> um, it's, a it's a serious problem that needs to be tackled. My major problem with the so-called environmentalists is they're not environmentalists. In proper environmentalism, you are someone who considers trade-offs. You look at a problem like global warming and you say, this is an issue that needs to be tackled. It's quite serious. If things get a lot warmer, then there are various consequences okay, from that. I'm going to dispute well, that. So well, well, it is well, not a serious problem that needs to be You can, will, you you can dispute how well, serious it is. Yeah. That's fine. You, you know, even the IPCC does that. They have different scenarios for global warming. But the problem we have with most environmentalists is they are refusing to consider carbon emissions as anything other than a unilateral problem that needs to be solved unilaterally in one country. They don't consider the trade-offs as other environmental goals. That's how we ended up with the diesel scandal, where people tried to solve one problem and created another. They don't consider the trade-off with economic goals, like affordability. That's how we've ended up with the government having to bail people out by either borrowing money or printing money. They don't consider the trade-off with social goals. So they are effectively sneering quite often at working-class people who have to get to work by using a car, for example. And they think that they should tell those people that, you know, not only can you not use your car because we're going to put it out of your reach, but we're going to make you buy a very expensive heat pump for your home because we've just arbitrarily decided that gas boilers don't work anymore. And on this, they are doing everybody a disservice across the environmental movement, whether they're free market, socialist or social democrat. So the big issue to tackle is how do you achieve environmental goals sensibly using free market mechanisms? Well, I would, I mean, we haven't got time, sadly, for me to go full-on war with you over <laughs> the, the reality of the science of climate change or, or in fact, the politics of environmentalism because I think if you read a lot of environmentalist works, they hate mass prosperity, they hate mass production, they hate mass consumption, they hate the fact that the masses have grown richer uh, under capitalism, flatly. I mean, you can read it in all their literature. So I don't think they're concerned that much about the cost of living crisis. But here's me pretending that I'm against, rather than the. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 I'm now going to move on. We can still talk about this sort of thing, uh, 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 and, the, and the cost of living crisis is so important. But I want to introduce another um, uh, a question. We've got the Jubilee coming. Hurrah, the Queen. Hurrah! Mm -hmm. We love the Queen. Who doesn't love the Queen? Who doesn't love the monarchy? 
Who? Well, maybe lots of people don't <laughs> Twitter, like Twitter, apparently. Twitter? <laughs> yeah, okay. Emma, what's the fuss about the Jubilee? Some people are against it, some people are for it. What's going on? Well, I, I think that um, I'm, a, I'm a monarchist, so full disclosure there as a caveat, but I, I think that this is uh, incredibly important. And someone was saying to me the other day that they had spoken to someone who had been at an historic Jubilee, I believe it was of Queen Victoria. So this was someone when they were, when they were younger, um, had met somebody much older than them who had been present at one of these historic moments and that um, what we're witnessing is something that ties us to uh, really to our ancient history going back thousands of years it's something that is constitutionally important it's historically important um, but importantly I think that it, it's it's something that people feel the monarchy but also celebrations surrounding it that you know we don't have a fourth of july we don't have um some of these big as you say republican celebrations that some other countries have but what we do have are jubilees we have these these um celebrations that center on the monarchy uh, that is um is something that is uh, you know held deeply within the affections of people in this country is there and i think that the, the, it's the fact that, that that it is it is a royal family it's something that is very personal and in that sense it really speaks to something sort of deeply and deep, deep and profound within the English, but more broadly within the British psyche. So I think this is a really important historical event, and people are really excited about it. Some people are really not. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, you're American. Are you American? Australian, I'm afraid. Oh, street I mean, That's how good my accent is. Okay, is you know, you're an Australian. What do you think of the uh, uh, monarchy? I mean, it's 2022. I mean, isn't it a slice of feudalism that we're still hanging out? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at, at, a, at a personal level, I, the Queen is an extremely impressive and, and respectable figure. And I, I always go back to the thought about her words on her 21st birthday about dedicating her, her life uh, to the service of the Commonwealth. And, and she's very much achieved that goal. Though just, I mean, I, I don't want to say this as an Australian, I just say this as someone who's, who's liberal and got, has liberal principles. I don't see much philosophical justification for having a monarchy in the, the 21st century. I, I don't like conceptually, I find the idea of a birthright to rule quite repulsive um, in modern society. Um, and okay, therefore, okay. I am I'm, going to, I'm going to agree with you on that, because you think this is feudalism and this is ridiculous. On the other hand, there is something compelling, I think, about Emma's class argument, because despite the fact that she's all brainy in Oxford and all that sort of thing, she's an Essex girl, <laughs> um, and my missus is a Cockney, and all of her family say, oh, we love the monarchy, oh, the good old queen. They don't actually talk like that. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, there are the, working the fact is, working mm -hmm. classes love the queen. Whether they like their broader monarchy, they love the queen. There is a way in which a lot of Labour councillors not only hate the monarchy, but are a bit sneering of kind of working, you know, the stuff about the white van and the George St George's flag mm. and all that sort of thing. How much is, of this is a bit? Of, is there a bit of class snobbery in here, Emma? I think in a lot of the. Um a lot of the criticisms of the monarchy, I think, there is a snobbery in the failure to understand why the monarchy is so important, why people love the monarchy so much. So on the one hand, as you say, you know, the queen herself is this symbol of service. She's one of the most incredible historical figures ever, in my opinion. I think many people would agree with that, not only because of the length of her reign, but because of her extraordinary service. She's one of the most incredible historical figures that, that 
England has had to offer to the world and we have happened to live within her lifetime that's quite extraordinary um, but also I think that you mentioned the philosophical justification and you can argue from a liberal perspective um, or from a secular perspective that even though we're a constitutional monarchy I can see how you could argue that there isn't a philosophical justification I believe that there is a philosophical justification for it but I think it's besides the point because there are a lot of things that are important in life that are not philosophically <laughs> justified it doesn't make sense but we like it yeah I mean I think that, that the well I think that that, that is a, that yeah. is a legitimate that's, point to that's make what it comes down to exactly yeah and, I mean Andy, I, Andy, Andy what do you think about this are you a monarchist well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get really lib dem about this oh no in the good sense and just say that you can have both I mean the symbolism I agree is important and the Queen has played a blinder over the course of her reign. I mean, she is almost the perfect encapsulation of what a constitutional monarch should be. She I doesn't mean, even interfere. Republicans love the Queen. Yeah, I exactly. Like, you yeah. Ever met anybody, yeah. So if you're a Republican, your great hope for the future is Charles Rex. Because you yeah. know he's not going to be like that. You know he's just not going to be able to help himself. He's going to interfere. He's going to try and be political. Yeah. And he's going to do the monarchy down until people are clamouring for his King son George to take Mambio, over. Yeah. Even less but, <laughs> I mean, I, I would be satisfied as somebody who's a little bit Republican just to have the constitutional monarchy elements removed. Yeah. I want to keep the royal family. I think they've presumed this wonderful ceremonial role. They're a tourist attraction, all these things. But let's remove them from that position. Or if we can't do that, then perhaps we should have affirmatory votes every 10 years or so that just says, do you want the Queen to continue? That's the problem, isn't it? Because Charles, Charles doesn't just want to be a tourist attraction, does he? No, he no, doesn't just want to open launch ships. Imagine we had made ships still. <laughs> I mean, that does feel like wishy-washy, uh, Lib Dem centrism. Uh, I'm dying inside. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, at a, at a fundamental level, you can you can say the monarchy is loved by a lot of people, um, and if if people want uh, this system of government, then they're most welcome to it. That doesn't mean that it it's in any sense justifiable. I mean, it doesn't mean that it, at a fundamental level, if, if we didn't have the system today, you'd invent it. I think even most monarchists don't think you would invent it. I would also say, I, I think what the sneering is about is probably patriotism. I mean, you can, mm -hmm. have, you can have sneering about um, patriotism in America without the, the monarchy. People, you know, in uh, major cities like New York will make fun of rednecks who go around with American flags on their vans or, or pickup trucks in their case. So I think that's probably the underlying issue is that kind of a clash between values that really put a lot of basis and identity onto what the nation and I that think sense I of community. And I suspect the Queen has been so enormously successful that really any discussion is going to be postponed until she dies because just it's that is when I think things will start to get interesting and when she does when the next generation starts to kick in obviously there will be um, a great pressure on them to become woke and we have the extreme woke wing with Meghan and Harry now being terribly in touch with their feelings and terribly kind of California um, and you have the the kind of the greenness and the, 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 the wokeness of the others I think I don't know what you think Emma but I think Prince Philip bless him was a bit of a block on a lot of that green stuff. I remember I met him once and it was he was he was quite skeptic and he knew David Bellamy well. He loved, I mean he was a real climate skeptic. Um, he's gone and are they going to drift towards the most appalling wokeism and will that spell doom? I hope not. I think that the royal family even going back to you know Prince Philip and the Queen, and, and even even before that, that, that because of the nature of the royal family, there is this attachment to land and landscape, and so it, it has always made sense that they care very much about the environment, but it just so happens that now that 
in a way has made um, William and, and Kate and, and, and also Harry, though possibly to a greater extent, somewhat woke adjacent because environmental issues have been lumped in with the, with, with the left more than with traditional conservative or even apolitical perspectives. Um, but I just wanted to touch quickly on something that you said because I think you, 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 you touched on something really important when you mentioned patriotism, that I think that sneering attitude that you mentioned, it is, it's also sneering towards, because patriotism is, is not like necessarily an entirely rational thing, it's just in the same way that you would prefer to save your mother from a burning fire than a stranger, it's because you have a, a natural affection there, and people have a kind of affection for their country and an affection for the royal family, and I think that there is a snobbery around that, that, that is something that comes more naturally to the working classes, more than, you know, this the famous line from Orwell where he says that the, 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 the um, liberal elite essentially would rather steal money from the poor box than sing God Save the Queen. It's that kind of, that kind of sneering mm. attitude. Um, and I think that the problem is that, going to tie that back into um, your question, that the problem is that now the royal family have become so tied up in politics anyway, regardless of their attempts to, to stay out of it. And obviously we've seen the younger generations leaning more into social issues that have become more politicised over time. And the environment is one of those issues. So you can easily see how the younger generation could be dragged into um, debates that we would probably regard as woke when it is just the case that the royal family have always concerned themselves with issues to do with the environment and to do with our landscape and all things agrarian. I, don't, I, I kind of see it slightly differently in the sense that um, you're talking about a literally an aristocratic class, and there's nothing more high-status, um, post-materialist uh, and elite than some of those woke values. If you look at the kind of people who are most likely to express particularly kind of left-wing views on some of those kind of cultural, social issues um, that you now see the roles engage with, um, they're kind of surrounded by those people. Uh, so it kind of makes sense just purely as a, you know, they are literally the, the, that kind of a class. And, and also at the same time, I think they also probably from a, a public relations perspective, um, want to do something that they, from their perspective, they see to be righteous um, and gets them platitudes in certain quarters. Um, it would be kind of ironic, though, if in the end the royal family kind of uh, stabs itself because it chooses, to, it chooses to go woke and therefore loses its kind of key supporter mm -hmm. base. You know, if, if the, the left-wing people who are pushing the royal family in that direction aren't necessarily um, as likely to be monarchists, <laughs> but if they if they then alienate themselves from their constituents, if they if they don't think properly as politicians about who their base well, is, well, is there something about that? Because there's the very same people you're talking about. They're kind of you know, my wife's Courtney family, or that's the thing. Who really don't talk like that? Um, <laughs> you know, they they love the monarchy, but you know, a lot of those people also love Jeremy Clarkson. They love petrol cars. You know, they are not into um, the woke environmentalism. You know, there is a real disconnect there. Is there something a bit like the Brexit divide, where you have an ordinary uh, ordinary Britons with one set of perspective and the establishment with quite another. And this, in a, in a sense, links back to the cost of living crisis. You have, an, as far as I can see, an awful lot of ordinary Britons in middle England are quite Thatcherite. They're quite, most people... Small business owners. Most people do not think that printing money sounds like a very good idea. Most people don't think it's a very good idea for the government to rack up four trillion pounds worth of debt. Most people don't think that it's a good idea for the government to spend 52% of GDP. But you have all that kind of gigantic well of common sense, but you have the elite in charge who are seem completely impervious to it. I, th I think you underestimate 
the royal family on this point. I mean, Prince Charles is the one who is most closely associated with the environmental movement. I mean, Harry and Meghan are trying to tag on, but no, they're essentially doing what most celebrities do, which is fly around the world telling people to watch the carbon footprint, which clearly isn't a very credible position. But Prince Charles and his advisers have built a very competent business in the Duchy of Cornwall. Oh, Dutch yeah, no, a brilliant it, business. Has yeah, that got anything yeah. to do with anything but building and, a good you know, business? It, well, hang on. You can look at it and say that it's sort of Waitrose-style marketing approach, very expensive products with the word organic stapled on them. But when I was looking in the shops the other day, I noticed they're actually starting to bring out value ranges. So they're clearly building up something there that says that this man is more in tune with what's going on in the country than his predecessors. I mean, his mother wouldn't like that because that's him playing politics, potentially. And that's part of the problem. The issue with the wokeness in the royal family is that they've not understood the symbolic value of the crown that is eternal and ethereal and above understanding very much like a theology. And if you don't understand that, then you create problems for the monarchy in future. And that's what we're expecting to see when the Queen passes on and her son takes over. Going beyond the money, getting back to my cost of living crisis, because although it's fun talking about the Jubilee, you know, there are people out there who are trying to survive on very little amounts of money. What uh, what can be done? We've talked about the kind of dip, you know the causes of the conflict. What can be done to break through? I mean, what this elite that seems hell bent on printing money and getting further into debt and taxing us to oblivion? What can be done? What can be done? What's happened to the Tories? Is there a single <laughs> free market bone Who? in the Tory body? <laughs> yeah. no, I mean, what, I mean, guys, guys, what, what, Emma, what, what's to be done? I wish I knew the answer to that question. I think fundamentally the problem is the Conservative Party are no longer behaving like Conservatives. So um, those who would have described themselves as small-c Conservatives have complained for a very long time that the Conservative Party have not been Conservative in social terms. And now I think there will be many free marketeers who are, com who are very concerned that the Conservative Party, the one last remaining Conservative element that they had left, which was their libertarian approach to the economy, that that has also fallen by the wayside. And now they're instituting this kind of Corbynomics. Um, and that ultimately they seem to be spiralling. They don't have any sense of, of their own principles, of, the, of a solid backbone to which they can respond to the opposition. Part of this may be to do with the fact that the opposition is so weak. And so you ha in order to, to define yourself in opposition to something, you have to have something to grapple with. But we're really seeing a political crisis across the board because the Labour Party don't know what they stand for either. And I think in many ways, if we imagine that, you know, coronavirus was this um, unexpected interjection into what would have otherwise been a, a reasonably smooth and slowly developing conversation about what we were before talking about as the great realignment. And then suddenly coronavirus comes in and, and, and knocks everything out of whack even more. And I think that the Conservative Party, as well as the Labour Party, struggling to come to, to terms with their new identity in the current landscape as parties. And the Conservative Party in the process have just completely lost all perspective on their own principles. Um, and in a way are basically a appropriating the Labour Party in an attempt to hold on to the red wall and we can see from the polls how well that's going because they're possibly going to hold on to only three out of 80 odd seats at the uh, battleground seats so um, I think the Conservative Party is in a real crisis I have no idea what the solution is to that other than to uh, in every way possible urge them to return to Conservative principles. Return to uh, Conservative but how we do that so, I don't know. Yeah how does that so either this crisis that is obviously very real and very awful is good news because it's going to shatter the existing 
consensus and shatter the parties and maybe we need something that traumatic in order to shake things up? Um, or does it go the other way? I mean, now they're talking about, oh, well, there is a terrible cost of living crisis, so we need to expand welfare. Everyone needs you know, uh, free meals for all kids. Um, you know, the, the old... Uh, the old scenario that's happened time and time, you know, socialism will create a, a problem and then the solution will be more socialism. Um, you know, is there a danger that actually we'll just go more hectically towards higher taxes, ever more government spending? I mean, there was quite a, a striking moment after Rishi made his speech when Anwes Dodds got up and commented it, it, that Labor's won the debate. And as um, Mark Littlewood said, it, fundamentally, that I think that's true, that the government doesn't seem to have very much confidence in its, in its arguments when it comes to economics. I'm mean, just on the case of the windfall tax. I think there was a, a comment on background given to the Times a few weeks before the announcement saying, yeah, we know this is a really bad idea, but we're just going to do it anyway because we, we think it's going to be popular. And that, that really shows a complete um, lackluster um, unwillingness and, and very little backbone. I think to some extent it can't be separated from Boris's quite precarious um, position within the party. I um, mean, he feels like he has to basically think day to day, putting out whatever fires he can, rather than thinking about long-term strategy. I think Rishi's probably been damaged by the controversy over his non-dom status, and to the extent to which he might have been willing to stand up for any particularly strong principles, he's, he's, he doesn't seem to have um, stuck by that, and he's now back to, he just wants to be popular by helping people. I mean, it, it's just, they just want sugar hits, and, and this is probably even speaks deeper to something wrong with our politics, or, or the way kind of modern politics operates. It, it's just sugar hit after sugar hit. It's about doing what is popular daily Day, and there's very little willingness mm -hmm. to, to take leadership into reform. And it really makes you think that the last kind of, the, the most free market government since Thatcher has to be the coalition years. Because they, they at least were willing to do, you know, they, they, austerity is greatly exaggerated, but at least they, they cut spending a little bit. They did free school reforms, they did universal credit. You know, they, they weren't exactly perceived at the time to be a great free market government. But in retrospect, they actually kind of had a set of principles. They had, a, they had this time in opposition um, to, to think through them and, and decide what they wanted to change and fix and improve in the country and had some success in those goals. Um, but with this government, we haven't had that process. And you talked about housing earlier and the shortages created by all the amount of government planning there's been since uh, the Second World War. And then what does Michael Gove say, say recently? More council housing is the mm. solution. Having created, I mean, the government <laughs> having created the problem of not enough houses and flats, the answer is more government building houses because we know the government does build things so well. We know from British Leyland cars. Guys, this is so bleak. Come on. Is it, where is the chair? The, the, chair is, the chair is outside of government. We've always got to remember here. We, we always, I think this is, this is the, the problem, problem with us kind of policy political folk is that we always just get this obsessive focus. You know, what is the government doing day to day? What are they saying? And when, in fact, the, the great sparks of entrepreneurialism are outside of government. And that's where you're going to be able to solve these problems. It's with kind of creative ideas, people starting up companies, creating jobs, doing the innovations that make our life better. And that's the reason and the world has gotten better for the last 70 years over the, over the Queen's reign. It's not because of we, government We policy. need more fantastic entrepreneurs like Prince Charles. Emma, <laughs> come on, come on. we've got the Jubilee week, weekend coming up. Give us a bit, a bit of cheer. What's to be happy about? I'm sure there's going to be a lot of cake consumed and we can all be happy about that. <laughs> bunting, we should all be happy about bunting. I mean, really, I think, I, mean, I agree with you and I think that um, the, the thing that gives me hope is that there are people who are articulating these ideas. We'd be really in a lot of trouble if 
we lost the uh, the knowledge and the ability to articulate those ideas. And we have seen, even within the political sphere, lots of new organisations blossoming, people doing things in a different way, partly because of coronavirus, things that are you know online so that events like this can reach a much larger audience. And I think that articulating those ideas are important because you know, it, it, yes, under the current circumstances, the government may have abandoned its conservative principles, but there are still people who are able to point that out to them. And I think that that is, is a cause for not being, com you know, viewing the situation as being completely bleak. And also we have to remember that uh, in the world outside, you know, you mentioned um, Cockneys and, and um, the, the rest of the country basically outside of Westminster, there are uh, more, uh, more street parties happening. This weekend than I think since the Jubilee before last. So people really are setting out to celebrate the Queen's reign. This is obviously going to be her last Jubilee. The Queen isn't going to live forever. Um, and people are really setting out to celebrate. And that is a real organic expression of patriotism. These are people <coughs> with common sense. They are, the pe they are the electorate. These are the people who choose which government stays, stay and which government goes. And ultimately, though we have very little choice when it comes to the difference between our political parties, particularly economically at the moment, ultimately the electorate does decide we are still a democracy and just as with Brexit, we can still count on those people and those sentiments to do the right thing and to express common sense and ultimately we can hope that common sense will win out. <laughs> will you, will, come on guys, how much cake are you going to be eating, how much food <laughs> are you going to be drinking and how happy will you be? Well you're not because you're Australian. Oh, no, I'm, I'm going to be. <laughs> Are you telling me Australians don't drink booze or eat cake? No, no, no. no. So, <laughs> well, I can the, assure the, you otherwise. On the beer front, I, I apologise. <laughs> Australia's <laughs> celebrating the Jubilee, though, aren't they? Uh, I think yeah, Australia's celebrating the Jubilee. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm intending to eat a lot of cake and uh, have a lot of coronation <laughs> chicken sandwiches. So I'll, I'll be, despite my Republican tendencies, I'll be a complete hypocrite and be getting into the celebrations. <laughs> That's the spirit. <laughs> Guys, I'd like to thank you very much indeed, you lovely, lovely people, for uh, joining me, the not Mark Littlewood, on the Mark Littlewood show. Um, we're back in a fortnight for another fascinating show with me. Who's it with me? Yes, with Oh, you. hell, you having me back? Probably not going to have me back after today, <laughs> but never mind. Please like and subscribe. <coughs> Patreon. Go to Patreon and give us some money because the IEA needs your support in order to do what it does. And what it's doing is incredibly important. Huge thanks to those, um, the, the uh, IEA online patrons, Donald Blaney, James Burns, Jordan Grover, Mark Edwards, Philip Ozuf. Richard Leader, um, Robert Appleby, and Timothy Worrell. If you'd like to find out more about Patreon, please go to patreon.com slash IEA London or email lwl at iea.org.uk. We love you all dearly. Join us again in two weeks. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>